Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Tom Oliver. Tom is an autism self-advocate, a TEDx speaker, and an aspiring lawyer from Australia who has dedicated his career to helping autistic individuals caught up in the justice system. In this conversation, we discuss autism acceptance in Australia, Tom's finding out about his diagnosis, how autism affects his everyday life, how Tom became interested in the law, three characteristics that are underlying causes of crimes among autistic people, challenges autistic people may face in the prison system, and ideas to mitigate injustices against autistic individuals. In this episode, discover what's possible when rehabilitation fits the crime. To learn more about Tom, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, Please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you Tom Oliver. Hi, Tom. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Rachel. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit of background about yourself. Yes. So my name's Tom. I'm here in Western Australia and my world changed around five years ago at the age of 15. I'm 20 now when I was diagnosed with autism. And I remember vividly sitting down on the couch with my parents and my parents told me I had autism and I was repulsed. I was angry. I was furious. And frankly, I was confused. I thought that my parents had imposed this disability onto me. And so I did what any 15-year-old would do. I, I turned to Dr. Google mm-hmm. and I began researching everything I could about autism. And I found myself really with this clarity in possession of this clarity and everything up until that point just made complete sense to me. I came to understand why I'd always craved structure and routine, why I'd always felt so different from other people in general, um, would get so intensely fixated on certain interests, even to the point of becoming, you know, completely obsessed. I found out why I was able to hyper-focus on a singular task for hours on end without flinching and also why I'd always struggle to decode sarcasm and understand certain social cues and the absurd concept of people saying things they didn't mean and meaning things they didn't say. Really, to me, my autism diagnosis was an unmitigated relief. Mm. Mm -hmm. Did you find a community there in Australia of people who understood what you were going through, like other autistic people? Yeah, so, well, essentially... I moved out of home when I was 18 and moved to a a city called Fremantle where I study at university. And I was fortunate to join a non-for-profit organization and was able to find people who I really relate with on on an innate level. And I was through contacts and networks and so forth. I was able to meet a professor from the University of Cambridge who lives in Western Australia now, and he's autistic himself, and he has an exceptionally good memory. He's very, takes things very literally as well as myself. And yeah, I'm just really able to relate to these people. It's hard to explain. Mm-hmm. So what's the level of awareness and acceptance of autism where you are in Australia? I suppose it depends upon an ad hoc circumstance, I suppose, there's still certainly a stigma, certainly in, in some areas. You do hear on an occasional basis people using autism as an insult, which is, you know, a little bit sad. But I would say in general there's a 
lot more acceptance, especially in recent times, and people are starting to become aware of the benefits, especially in employment and so forth. Mm-hmm. How does autism affect your everyday life? Really good question because I don't know my life without autism because mm-hmm. obviously I was born with it. So I suppose I take things very literally. I crave structure and routine. So every minute, every hour in my life is almost preconceived. It's pre-planned, if you will. So I like to live with short-term goals, with long-term goals. And I'm also able to hyper-focus, as I said, on, on singular tasks for hours on end. And it wasn't until I realized that my peers weren't able to do this did I realize that this was characteristic of autism. Yeah. Is there anything that you struggle with? Yes, I definitely. There's, I, do, I did struggle. I had to learn interacting with people in a very theoretical, manual way. And so I learned it like you would when you're you know, learning biology in a textbook. I, I had to learn in a very most idiosyncratic way. And I, I struggled with small talk, gossip, things that didn't seem pragmatic to me. Could you talk about how you learned to navigate those social situations? I suppose over time through being in really uncomfortable situations, you learn and also you, look, you mask. So you look at what other people are saying in certain situations and then copying accordingly. And I suppose it's also really important on that note to, for an autistic person especially to surround themselves with people, with like-minded people, with good people, because especially it's the case for an autistic person that you become who you surround yourself with because of that masking especially. Mm. Could you describe a social situation in which you're masking and doing or saying something that isn't really natural to you and you'd rather be doing or saying something different? I suppose when I see someone that I know whom I haven't necessarily been in touch with for a while, and I'm not really necessarily on the same wavelength, so to speak. And, and they'll say hi to me. And I know it's just very, it's almost grueling for me having to say hello and then how have you been and so forth. And that back and forth I find quite torturous because it's blurs the line between predictability and what I would deem to be a waste of time, to be honest. I'd, I'd rather be at home studying what I love, which is law and yeah, surrounding myself in my special interest. So if you run into someone on the street and they're trying to, let's say, like catch up with you, your inclination is to just walk away? Well, obviously I've learned to mask and, and be socially acceptable in that regard. But certainly if I were to have it my way, something closer to that than the alternative. <laughs> Yeah, that's funny. I think I can actually relate to that a little bit. If I run into someone that I haven't seen in a long time at a very unsuspecting location, I do feel this awkwardness of being forced to have these pleasantries that I really don't care about. So I can just imagine that it might be a little bit magnified for autistic people. Yes. And when you were saying earlier, Rachel, around we're discussing how I feel around other autistic people. I find it much more natural because I find them to be much more direct. They cut through all, you know, they don't beat around the bush, so to speak. They just say what they're thinking. And I find that refreshing, uh, that honesty, that raw honesty. Mm-hmm. I wish everyone was like that, to be frank. <laughs> We've had a previous guest talk about how some autistic people don't even bother asking, how are you, unless they really want to know. Would you agree with that? Yes, that's a very good statement. Okay, so how did you become interested in the law? Yeah, so essentially I've always loved rules. I love adhering to rules, but I also love strategically finding technicalities and loopholes around rules. I just love the idea of finding loopholes around contracts and and things of this nature and in doing so helping people and being able to solve problems I'm very strategic and to be honest, most importantly, the main reason I found myself studying law is because injustice 
makes me want to peel my face off. I, I really can't stand it. And so, yes, I found myself studying law and also biomedical science at university. And being autistic myself, I naturally became interested in our justice system as it pertains to autistic people. And my long-term goal, if you like, is to establish my own law firm one day, defending people with disabilities and autism alike and really fighting for a justice system which caters for all, including autistic people. I'll also add, though, that when I was researching this area and when I was studying to deliver my TED Talk, which I delivered recently, I found that whilst 2% of people have autism, or approximately, studies show that approximately 4 to 5% of prisoners are autistic. And that statistic doesn't include the undoubtedly numerous undiagnosed autistic prisoners. And I did some research of case law and, yeah, I found that it was three autistic characteristics which were the very indicative underlying cause of their crimes, if you like. Let's back up just a little bit. That statistic that you just mentioned, is that specific to Australia or would you say that is relevant worldwide? That's a good question. That study was given to me by Professor Tony Atwood, who's considered one of the leaders on autism. And that specific study which he cited was out of the US. And the premise of your question definitely illuminates the lack of research in this area. So I couldn't give you, and because we live in a, a, a jurisdictional legal system, it's hard to find studies which encapsulate the entire world legal system. Mm-hmm. So what are those three common characteristics that make autistic people, I guess, either more susceptible to unintentionally committing a crime or maybe being wrongfully accused, right? Sure. Yeah, so it does render them very, very vulnerable in our justice system. And so the first one, Rachel, is an inability to read and respond to social cues. So that, more often than not, autistic people caught up in our justice system are not what I found criminally driven per se, but rather what I've found is that criminal behaviour among autistic people is often a result of social naivety or simple misunderstanding. So that can be anything from following instructions from the wrong person without realising it to not understanding what a police officer is telling them to do or say, to committing an offence from genuinely misunderstanding social cues to oversharing and being exceptionally trusting in police interviews where misunderstanding leads to misinterpretation. And furthermore, autistic people can be unaware of the impact of their actions, therefore failing to outwardly express empathy and remorse, and that can also land them with an even harsher sentence. Mm-hmm. I also have a few examples. So we had a client who hacked into a hospital and this was an autistic man and he put all of the medical records onto his website and he was just obsessed with computer science and computer programming. And most of the clients I previously encountered in the criminal defence firm I worked at were such that they had malice or criminal intent. But what I found with with these autistic clients was that what was driving their crimes was often curiosity or, you know, something quite innocent and punishment really wasn't conducive for them in the imprisonment sense. Mm -hmm. So are you saying then that their diagnosis should excuse them from facing a penalty? Not excuse them as such. Essentially, what I'm saying is that when it comes to punishment of autistic people, um, because a lot of the studies show that autistic people do not respond effectively to imprisonment, and often the go-to punishment for imprisoned uh, autistic offenders is mere incarceration. And what we found is that through studies um, is that autistic people do not respond effectively nor even adequately to mainstream correctional settings. And so what I propose is more often than not, when the autistic characteristics are the underlying cause of their crimes, that it be suitable therapy over imprisonment. And I'm happy to talk about the other two characteristics which render them vulnerable and 
then yeah. talk about. Okay, just one one quick thing before we get into that, just to follow up on that, to clarify, how would you measure if a criminal is responding well to the punishment? My understanding is that certainly if they are reoffending, then obviously the rationale for imprisonment is to rehabilitate. But if when it comes to autistic offenders, what we often see is that because the autistic characteristics were the underlying cause of their crimes, which they're born with, they tend to reoffend. So, for example, there was one case from the US wherein an autistic man, uh, Darius, his name was, was obsessed with the public transport system, was taught to drive and operate trains and buses as a child by employees of the train station. And as an adult, Darius decided to get in a train and operate it, getting his passengers from A to B all in perfect timing, all passengers satisfied with the service. However, ultimately, you know, Darius wasn't employed to operate this train. And so he was charged with impersonating a federal employee. He was imprisoned. And upon his release, Darius was still obsessed with trains. And so he again began driving and operating trains and buses. He was again imprisoned, again released, and the cycle just continued. Mm. And Darius has now spent most of his adult life incarcerated and segregated from society. And so to answer your question, Rachel, I would say that using Darius as an example, if sentencing Darius to imprisonment is not rendering any change insofar as his criminal activity, then I would put it that he's not being rehabilitated. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so back to the characteristics that you were describing. So one is the misreading of social cues. What are the other two? Yeah, so misreading and also an inability to respond to the social cues as well. So essentially what I've done is I've looked at a, an array of case law and found three categories which were really quite discreet. And the second one was hypersensitivities. So this often entails losing control after experiencing a sensory overload, which wouldn't typically affect a person without autism, found that autistic people may have too high or too low a pain threshold, the hypersensitive or hyposensitive to touch, sound, smells, or the like. And they also have a very strong craving and propensity for consistency, predictability, as well as structure and routine in their environment. And what was an overwhelming pattern was that when an autistic person had a disruption or unpredictability in this regard into their structure and routine, it can be very distressing for them, an autistic person. It can lead to frustration and rage, and in turn, it can render them very susceptible indeed to committing crimes such as trespass to person and, and trespass to property. And for example, there was a case here in Australia wherein an autistic man let's call him Tim, he went to catch a bus, but Tim forgot his concession card. And when the bus inspector was questioning Tim as to why he'd forgotten his concession card, all of a sudden Tim actually assaulted the bus inspector because the bus inspector just brushed past Tim's arm and Tim was also imprisoned. It's a really, really unfortunate case there. Mm-hmm. So in that case, how would you try and argue for a just consequence? Yeah, so in that case, to distill it down is essentially if Tim were to go to prison because he's, he has autism and we'd obviously bring in expert witnesses to the courtroom, we'd essentially argue that imprisonment isn't going to change the fact of Tim's hypersensitivity to touch. Obviously, when the bus inspector brushed past Tim's arm, Tim was unable to cope. And so we'd also potentially argue for self-defense because if Tim's more hypersensitive than the average person, there could be a, a greater argument for self-defense as opposed to if he didn't have that hypersensitivity to touch. And we'd argue for various therapy over imprisonment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you're not necessarily just letting him off the hook for what happened. Like there still needs to be a consequence and maybe the bus driver also needs to know and understand that something is being done about the offense towards him. 
Yes, and I'll also elaborate by saying in the legal system, or at least here in Australia, we have what we call uh, general deterrence and we have specific deterrence. So general deterrence is whereby you are punishing a person but, and in doing so deterring the general public from committing like offence, a like offence, whereas specific deterrence is where you, by punishing a person, uh, deterring that specific person from committing that offence. And essentially what we argue and what we have argued in the past is that general deterrence ought not to apply when punishing an autistic person because obviously the general public doesn't necessarily have autism. And so that's one of the ways in which we argue in that regard. Mm -hmm. Okay, so staying with this example, what kind of therapy would you suggest? That's a great question. And, and this is another area that is, is lacking severely. And obviously, I'm not a, an OT or a therapist. I'm, I'm a lawyer, so I can't, I can't speak with qualification. But essentially, there are some programs that I think I've heard of some professionals who use exposure therapy. There are other therapies of which I can't recall the name of, and that's not what I specialize in ultimately. But yeah, that, that's where research is needed as well. I see. I'll also add there that a lot of the therapy, you know, by having established programs, that's all well and good, but especially with autistic person, people, when you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. And so what is often the case is that you need personalized therapy that might not be pervasively implementable in the sense that what might work for one person might not necessarily work for another person on the autism spectrum, because it is indeed quite a, a broad pervasive spectrum. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what are some of your other ideas to reduce injustices? We're talking about therapy instead of incarceration. Is there anything that can be done preventatively? Yes. So, and, and this, I hope this is answering the question, but when I'll just add that when I was researching for my TED talk, I thought I'd uh, search for other, you know, why not search for other criminal defense lawyers specializing in this area already? in autistic clients, that is. I searched here in Perth, where I live, in WA, and I couldn't find one. And so I broadened my search statewide, still not one. And when I broadened my search, entirety of Australia, Thai nation, I only found one South Australian lawyer. And I tried to contact her, but she was, I think she's semi-retired. I think she was, I don't think she's well. And I also found the occasional lawyer here and there in, in the US and the UK. But what was very notable was that each of these rare lawyers whom I came into contact with were all under the assumption that they were the only lawyer of their kind in their respective nation and none of them were autistic themselves. And so needless to say, Rachel, there's an abject lack of lawyers who understand and specialise in defending these autistic people caught up in our justice system. And so I think in order to uh, prophylactically or prevent autistic people ending up in such unfortunate circumstances whereby they're imprisoned for something which they were born with. I think we need more lawyers in a variety of jurisdictions because who, who specialise in autistic clients because ultimately if I'm autistic and I commit an offence in, in another jurisdiction, I can't seek a lawyer who's in a different jurisdiction to me because the laws are not necessarily the same. Mm -hmm. Right. And I can add more to that. I can say that we also need, because unfortunately, the media coverage of criminal offences involving autistic people is very often misleading and unduly sensational. Whenever there's an autistic case, the media likes to um, have a field trip with it. They, they paint them out as being this a psychopathic, just this scary individual and, and really being quite stereotypical. It's really quite detrimental, not only to public policy but also to public perception, stigmas, really non-prescriptive. Non and I'll also say that if we had more expert witnesses, that would be highly beneficial to provide court reports and testimonies for autistic people because ultimately judges don't necessarily have to have regard to autistic characteristics and certainly here in, in Western Australia, the word autism doesn't appear in the criminal code, which is the legislation governing criminal acts here in Western Australia, at least. So we need more expert witnesses. And we also need a more far-reaching screening process 
of an autism diagnosis to find out who's autistic before they enter imprisonment to find out you know to provide them with the help they need to you know provide them with support due to their inherent vulnerability their gullibility and their trauma mm-hmm. because ultimately autistic people don't fail well in prison right so what are some of those challenges that they might face once they're already in the prison system right so essentially as i was discussing before autistic people tend to mask so when they're surrounded by other criminals, they tend to be much more prone to peer pressure. You know, they're very vulnerable. So if someone tells them to do something, they don't necessarily have the same ability as maybe a neurotypical person. I generalize, of course, but as a neurotypical person to decipher that what this person's asking them to do isn't necessarily what they should be doing for their well-being. So I think it's Needless to say, they can be extremely vulnerable and it's much harder to rehabilitate them once they're in prison as well because of the rabbit hole that they're in. What do you mean? So essentially, once they are imprisoned, because they are surrounded by criminals who are more, more than likely there for criminal intent, you know, they've intended to commit the crimes, whereas as some of the examples I've used where the autistic person isn't necessarily doesn't necessarily have criminal intent. They're merely curious or they're hypersensitive, and so when they're surrounded by criminals who are potentially you know, dangerous, they have criminal intent. They can they're surrounded by those people, and they can mask those behaviours. And then when they are released from prison, it's more likely than than not had they not been imprisoned that they will demonstrate those traits of criminal intent. I hope that makes sense. Mm, yeah. It's like they've been modeled this behavior and they're almost imitating it. Yes, that's right. And, and that's why they've, they call it the, one of, I think Tony Atwood called it the chameleon syndrome or something. I think it's mm. colloquially referred to because they're heavily masked, masking, especially the, the clients we come across at the criminal defense firm I work at, where you can tell they're, they're very easily shaped by the people they're surrounded by. And you've received messages from autistic inmates, right? Could you share some of those? Yeah, it's been really heartbreaking. Um, Since I delivered my TED Talk, I've received hundreds and hundreds of messages from all over the world, not not just in Australia, not just in the US, not just in the UK, from autistic inmates who are looking for an adequate defense, a defense, a lawyer who understands autism and can um, because that's ultimately the, their largest mitigating factor, as it's called in Australia. And so, as I said before, there's not many lawyers who specialise in defending autistic clients. And so, when I get those messages that you know they're they're seeking me to help them out, and it's really heartbreaking because ultimately I can't because the laws are different in different jurisdictions. Mm. So. Let's talk about some success stories. Could you share some cases in which you, I guess you could say you saved an autistic person from an injustice? Yes, so we've saved a number of autistic clients. And I should start off by saying that I work at Savannah Legal, which is a criminal defense firm. And I was fortunate to be picked up by a guy called Lewis Christopher, whom I met. And he grew up in a refugee camp. He He's now the CEO of his own law firm. He's got a practice in Western Australia. He's got law firms all over Australia. And he's really taken me under his wing. And because I do a lot of talks in the autistic community, we're able to bring in lots of autistic clients through giving talks to the parents and and so forth of autistic people. And we recently saved, this was a couple of months ago now, we saved an autistic client from 15 years of imprisonment and were able to persuade the judge to give a non-custodial sentence, which is the listeners a sentence without imprisonment, and we were able to get him suitable therapy over imprisonment. And this really set a precedent Australia-wide. Unsurprisingly, this isn't an area which people know much about, even in the judicial system. And it's, it was a running joke among our team of lawyers because the client's family kept inviting me to the their family gatherings thereafter, <laughs> which was quite funny. But, 
yeah, it really goes to show just the impact we have. And it was a really rewarding experience. What are the details are you able to share? Yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking because I'm not sure how many, how much I can. Okay. I, I can't give names, but I can say that this client, he essentially got in the wrong crowd in high school and he was given videos of a nature which was illegal. That's probably as much detail as I can go into. And he had it on his hard drive and, yeah, it was really unfortunate. That's probably much detail as I can go into, unfortunately. Okay, okay. Well, I think we can paint the rest of the picture of what happened there. So the third autistic characteristic which renders autistic people very vulnerable in our justice system is obsessive interests. And this is, I would say, probably it's a, it's a major one. It's up there with inability to read and respond to social cues insofar as the number of clients it brings in. And so essentially, autistic people often have a very specific interest that the autistic person obsesses over and knows everything about. However, when this said obsession, which they have, could be anything, pertains to something of a criminal nature, such as guns, drugs, uh, theft or stalking, or when the said obsession simply renders the autistic person more susceptible to committing crimes, then the autistic person can inadvertently find themselves caught up in our justice system. For example, I think I gave that case of Darius who was obsessed with trains. And really, one ought to ponder whether it would be better if we just employed people like Darius who's obsessed with trains and was taught to drive and operate these trains as a child by employees of the train station because ultimately he's great at what he's doing, he's great at his job. I think we really need to be more equitable in our approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we talk a lot on this podcast about identifying people's strengths and what they're interested in from a young age so that they can get whatever additional training they need to be valuable members of society and can contribute something and also feel good about themselves and build confidence. So if a person does have an autism diagnosis and then they're arrested, do they then go through a different type of screening so that they're not automatically just thrust into the hands of the law? Or is that where the gap in education is for law enforcement? That's exactly right. Yeah, there's, there's no difference at all. Insofar as before they're imprisoned, they sometimes uh, will Previously, before we, we laid down this precedent, which I discussed, where we saved that, that autistic client facing 15 years, it was the case that sometimes autism would act as a mere mitigating factor in the sense that we just reduce the sentence by a specified period, which was already in the criminal code or which was at the discretion of the judge, depending upon the, depending upon the offence. But ultimately, no, they're, they're in prison the same way. And, and it's a really good question because it, it just goes to show that it just doesn't sit right with, with many people. So law reform is, is definitely needed. And I was actually nominated for Young Australian of the Year. And what that will hopefully enable me to do is give me a platform to make law reform to the criminal code here in Western Australia. And often you see in, through the legal research I do is that sometimes there's reform in one country and that sort of creates a ripple effect of other countries follow if it works. And so hopefully, touch wood, fingers crossed, something amount. Yeah, definitely. We need a pioneer like you making a difference in this domain. My main message is that I really think it, it behooves us to consider in light of the aforementioned three autistic characteristics in the corresponding case law I found to consider whether autistic people are being punished, are punished in such cases simply for being autistic. And as controversial as, as that might sound, Rachel, you know, if, if John is unable to, t to decipher who, is, who he should or should not take instructions from, and I should say that John was another autistic client who he had his sister's boyfriend invite him to a party. And John was very excited. He'd never been invited to a party before. And at the party, John met a stranger whom he thinks is his friend within 20 minutes. And this newfound friend gave John a bag and told him to put it in the boot of his car. 
And so John, thinking he was doing a good deed to this newfound friend, took the bag, put it in the boot of his car, and at the end of the party, he took the bag home and put it under his bed. And being curious, uh, John decided to inevitably open the bag to find that it contained guns in it. And John panicked. He was scared. He didn't know what to do. So he put the bag of guns back under his bed, and eventually the cleaners found this bag of guns and John ended up in prison. And I think that's a really good example, and this was a really unfortunate case which we dealt with, of where an inability to read and respond to social cues, that first um, autistic characteristic, uh, can render them really vulnerable. And so if, you know, if people like John are unable to decipher who they should or should not take instructions from, and to know what to do in extreme circumstances, such as finding guns in a bag he's already in possession of, uh, if Tim, uh, who can't help but lose control and have a meltdown when experiencing a sensory overload due to his hypersensitivity to touch, you know, the bus inspector rushed past his arm. And if Darius can't help but be drawn to trains to the point of operating them without being employed to do so. Well, then for starters, you know, as I say, why can't we just employ people like Darius? But overall, are we not just punishing these autistic people simply for being autistic? And if so, I think there should be an uproar. You know, is it really fair to imprison these people just like everyone else? And I firmly believe it is not. I think that a suitable therapy is in most cases more appropriate and studies back that up accordingly. Mm-hmm. And how do these characteristics also play out, not just in committing the crimes, but once they are in the legal system, let's say they're facing a judge or police officers, like you mentioned earlier, how might these characteristics influence what will happen after that? Another thing I come across insofar as a law and as it pertains to the justice, to autistic people, is that, you know, I, and I recognize that, um, you know, I, I struggle with eye contact and body language and I am very formal. It's, it's not just mere nerves, but as an autistic person, these somewhat basic things don't come naturally to me at all. But consider an autistic person who is less able to speak than myself, in a witness box, uh, giving evidence. There is a lack of eye contact, monotonal voice, unusual facial expressions, different body language, and a jury of our peers who, despite not being allowed to construe such observations as guilt, may do so unconsciously anyway because they're human beings. Because a lot of the cases which I come across are such that it's just really unfortunate because you see the autistic person in the witness box and you just see them, their, their case falling apart just by them talking. And it, you almost question whether it's discriminatory because they can't help but have those uh, idiosyncrasies whereby they might have a monotone of voice or they might not be having direct eye contact and able to maintain that with the cross-examining lawyer. That can come across as guilt. Yeah. And unnecessarily like it's it's not necessarily the case they are guilty if they're doing that because it's actually very characteristic of autism Mm -hmm. i think it's very important it's why i'm i'm advocating for this law reform in regard to putting the autistic characteristics within the criminal code so that the judges are forced to have regard to them whenever they're whenever an autistic person is on trial well in the meantime before that law is reformed, are experts brought in to speak about autism and explain to the judge or to the jury that some of these characteristics shouldn't be defining or presuming guilt? Yeah, that's a really good question because not only are there a lack of those those expert witnesses, but it's also very costly for the court. And essentially, the, the problem I have with that is that it creates an inherent redundancy because it's inherently inconsistent if you're constantly every trial having you know, expert witnesses almost explaining how their autism correlates to their offending. Wouldn't you just have the autistic characteristics which are discussed and, and other behaviours in the criminal code so that you have to have regard to them? Because then ultimately what happens, Rachel, is that the lawyers can cross-examine, discredit the witness, discredit the credibility of um, there's just an array of it's completely non-exhaustive, and it, it can 
be unfair for the the autistic person. There needs to yeah. be more stability in the way in which the judge is presented with how the autistic person's offending relates to their autistic characteristics. Right. And is it also possible to train the autistic person on, like, let's say, courtroom etiquette? And, I mean, it's kind of telling them to mask, which is unfortunate. But in the meantime, you know, until these laws are reformed, because that could also take time, like, there might be ways to practice role-playing before stepping into the courtroom. Have you done anything like that? that? That's a good idea, albeit what I would say to that effect is that autism is an invisible disability, so to speak. And so, you know, it's almost like, and I know it can be hard for people to believe, but it's almost like saying, and I know this is very hyperbolic and exaggerated, but it's almost like saying, to a person in a wheelchair, why can't you just walk? Uh, Because an autistic person who may really struggle with eye contact, um, I I hear a lot of my autistic friends saying that when someone looks them in the the eye, it's like they're looking into their soul. It's just so confronting for them. And so you can imagine how hard that would be when they're in a witness box, when they're having to look into the lawyer's eyes or the judge's eyes and not look guilty or and ultimately, yes, courtroom etiquette can be beneficial, but at the end of the day, it, it's probably not feasible, probably not realistic that they mask all of their autistic characteristics. Otherwise, I put it that they may not even be picked up as having autism potentially. Mm. And so that's that, I like your optimism, though, Rachel. <laughs> but, yeah, that, that's it's the reality is that, yeah, a lot of autistic people on trial are construed as being guilty for, the, for such reasons. Well, we do have a lot of work to do to educate law enforcement and, and judges and I guess anyone really in the legal system who might interact with autistic people. At the same time, we need to prepare autistic individuals for these potential conflicts, right? So this is actually a really interesting topic because I, well, for me, because I wanted to go to law school for a, lot, a long time pretty much when I was a kid until I was a teenager. And I even majored in political science when I was in college, university, and was really interested in the defense side of the law and wanted to be a public defender. And I believe so much in second chances. And then, you know, my career kind of shifted to psychology and (laughs) let go of the, the dream to be a lawyer. But I think this is just so important for the community, especially when looking at vulnerable populations like this, it's kind of for a lack of awareness on the side of the autistic person also. Like if they are given information from a young age that this could happen to them, it might help prevent some of these conflicts. Or even if, you know, they they run into some trouble, if they have the local lawyer who specializes in working with autistic people, if they have that number saved on their phone as like an emergency line, you know, like once they're at the police station, it's like, hey, I'm not going to say anything. Talk to my lawyer. (laughs) I think that could be really helpful too. And and it's a really good point you made because with with one, certainly a few of the autistic clients that that we've helped out, like for example, with that guy who hacked into the hospital, he was obsessed with computer science and was just really curious around firewalls and cybersecurity and, and so forth. And was just experimenting really. I uh, wasn't thinking of, oh, you know, didn't have the criminal intent and the vengeance of, oh, I'm going to hack into this and cause this damage. And I think if he was hindsight, if he had that knowledge that this is where you're breaking the law, these are the repercussions, then I'm, I'm pondering to myself now, just, you know, certainly I would think that that would reduce, if they were aware of what was right and wrong, uh, certainly reduce. Um, the, the number of autistic clients we come across. And, and it's a shame because the reality is you have to go to law school to, to learn uh, many of the laws. Remember when I went to law school, some, some things you learned, you didn't even know that was illegal and, and, so, and so forth. So I think it's really, it's really important and I'm glad you, yeah, I didn't even consider that. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, just to carry on with that, it's like I have heard maybe this is a stereotype, but that a lot of autistic people like to follow rules yes, and want to stay in the lines, within the lines. So 
it really just shows that it's a lack of awareness of what the law is. Not that that's excusable, right? I mean, you could even say that ignorance isn't an excuse, right? Not knowing that something is illegal and doing it just because you didn't know it was illegal doesn't mean that you're forgiven, right? So it's this kind of fine line. Yeah, and we learn in law school that the sake of law is not a defense, but the sake of fact is a defense. And of course, you know, you, you might probably ask them, well, what's the distinction between the two? And it's a very subtle one. What do you mean by that? So mistake of law is essentially if you're mistaken as to what the law is. So if you make a mistake and then you say, oh, and your defense is that you didn't know that that was, that was the law, that's considered not a defense. And I think the rationale is something to the effect that well, you, you buried your head in the sand, so to speak. You haven't, you know, you can't be excused just because you haven't made yourself aware of the laws. But if it's a mistake of fact, and I could be wrong, but my understanding is the distinction is that mistake of fact is something more specific to the factual scenario. Yeah, I'd have to give an example. Like if you weren't aware of something factual within the factual scenario that then rendered illegality. Mm. Like if you didn't know the bag was full of guns. Yes, perfect. Yes, perfect example. Yes. Whereas if you were to say, oh, I didn't know that, that having guns was illegal, then that would be a mistake of law. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It makes me wonder if autistic adults or, you know, minors too, had people in their lives to help them with these things, whether it's a coach or family members, trusted friends to just kind of shed some light on these things. Like, you know, Darius, who's really obsessed with trains, kind of warning him like, hey, you can't drive every train. <laughs> you need to be employed, you know. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, as I said, he's actually been taught by the employees of the train station, drive trains as a kid. And so objectively speaking, those were the people that he looked up to. Mm-hmm. Those are the people who he saw and, and thought, you know, these people are made. This is what I want to do. And that's who he's masked. That's who he's become. And it's just really unfortunate that he hasn't gone about it in a legal route or they haven't. Now he can't be employed because he's got that criminal record as well. Mm. Yeah, it affects the rest of your life. That's really sad. Yeah. I'd like to close on one last question. What advice would you give to autistic people to protect themselves? from ending up on the wrong side of the law? That's a really good question. I've not been asked that before. It's all been about how we can interact with them and systemic changes. I would say ultimately like it is, it is a difficult question because it's, quite a, like, it's hard to encapsulate all autistic people. But certainly I think if I were to give advice to an autistic person, I'd say really be conscious around who you're surrounding yourself with. It's hard to give that advice because that can be the very thing that they struggle with um, in you know, picking friends and those social cues and understanding what's good social skills and you know, what's who they should and shouldn't be surrounding themselves with. But I suppose that's how a lot of the clients, at least the ones that I see and the ones that we, we save from imprisonment, they get in that circumstance in the first place because they're just surrounded by people who lead them down that path and because they're conforming to the people in their immediate environment um, and copying those traits. Uh, They just copy the behaviours and they might not have that ability to recognise that these aren't the right people that they should be surrounding themselves with, like uh, in comparison to a a neurotypical person might be able to. Mm. But I'd like to say that to also that I recognise this issue is very endemic to the legal system, but ultimately... You know, and there is a critical need for better understanding, as you say, of autism in the community, you know, particularly among lawyers and police officers, judges and, and even jurors. But, you know, you don't have to work in the legal sector. The judiciary system, which is ultimately to judge, that's what it is, it transcends the courtroom. And, you know, teachers can employ greater understanding when delivering punishment upon an autistic child behaving badly in classrooms. Public servants can demonstrate more awareness when interacting with autistic people in the public. Doctors and nurses can demonstrate more empathy. And essentially, 
what I found, what I learned from one of my mentors is that he wrote um, Neurotribes. Um, Steve Silverman is his name. He's a, a historian. And he told me that 100 years ago, um, due to the sense of shame and stigma felt by families, autistic people were just sent to psychiatric units, supposedly for their own good, in doing so becoming invisible to the world at large. And so clearly, you know, we've come a long way from, from then, but we still have a long way to go because being autistic is, is not a crime. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you, Tom, for sharing your expertise with us. This is a really informative episode. I think that'll just bring a lot of awareness to this really unfortunate and dangerous reality that autistic people face all over the world. How can people learn more about you and the work that you do? I can look at my website. Um, it's tomoliver.biz. And my TED Talk is set to be released in three weeks. And that encapsulates a lot of the issues. And they can find me on LinkedIn as well. All right. Great. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. Considering the three autistic characteristics that Tom identified in his research, we should really pay attention to his question. Are autistic people being punished simply for being autistic? Being more aware of how these traits may manifest themselves in different situations can help law enforcement and judges make better decisions in cases involving autistic individuals. Like Tom, are you a self-advocate willing to share your story and educate others? Are you a professional seeking to hear directly from autistic voices and improve your practice? Are you a family member hoping to support and empower your loved one? Whatever your role related to autism is, you can join our global autism community to connect and collaborate with people all over the world. Sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.